0: This, this is, is Yawa, Yawa
1: Radio.
0: One welcome to the Yawa Radio podcast. The Yawa Radio podcast is an opportunity again to listen to one of our inspirational, four thought-provoking interviews that we have brought to the listeners of Yawa Radio
2: Every fortnight, you can join me, your host, Steve Phillip, alongside Danielle and Paul from the Jordan Legacy team, together with some very special guests for an hour of conversation, music, and above all, hope. Welcome to Jordan Space. This show does discuss themes of suicide, and we'd encourage you to take care of yourself by stepping away from the show at any point, should you find the content triggering or uncomfortable to listen to. For support, please visit our website, thejordanlegacy.com, and our help menu options. Welcome to Show 31 of Jordan Space, and on this week's show, we'll be exploring the benefits of technology supported by human intervention in helping prevent suicides. Our guest is Darren Barden, co-founder of iTalk, the mental health app. Before we meet with Darren, I have Danny and Paul joining me as always. And Paul, one of the key pieces in our Zero Suicide Society picture it's what we've summed up as tech for good. What comes under this broad heading?
3: Well, there's, there's a lot coming under that heading. And I think it's important, first of all, to say that we know that tech for good, the contribution of tech is going to be absolutely critical for you know, transformation in suicide prevention. No, no major transformation in history has taken place without technological change you know from from the invention of the wheel to the printing press <laughs> and of course modern day internet you know we know that tech is going to play a role so it's a number of things it's search engines it's ways of identifying people who are at risk of suicide it's it's apps to help people who are struggling it, it's, it's basically using our imagination and just thinking of all the different ways uh, we can you know we can apply technology and also we we, we call it tech for good because sometimes the focus is too much on tech for bad. <laughs> you know, there's too much emphasis on, on online abuse and, and so on. So we've got to look at online safety and protecting people, but we've got to look at ways to use tech for good.
2: I think it's a really good point. As always, there's two sides to every story, and we do hear so much uh, of the bad news of, of technology. Of course, as you say, mental health and suicide prevention apps are part of this. You spoke at the launch of a new app called iTalk. Can you tell us more about the role of apps and iTalk as well?
3: Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's some great apps, and you know, some of the best ones are, are, are great in, in terms of building around user experience and being, you know, user focused. And so there's a few that have developed in the mental health field. We've recently had uh, ones targeting, you know, people who are struggling with their mental health, or targeting people who are bereaved, or targeting, you know, younger people, and so on. The iTalk app was a really interesting one because it's been initially designed with the construction industry in mind, because we know that almost 10 percent of all suicides are people working in construction, and if you take into account people working with the construction sector, you know, it could be talking about one in seven of all suicide so it's been initially designed not you know ultimately it's going to be for anybody but it's initially designed construction in mind and all the kind of basic functionality that's needed to help people their mental health and then specifically looking at suicide prevention you know with 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 functions in there which will help people help to identify people at risk or in danger as well and get support to them so it's a very exciting development
2: Absolutely. And of course, we're going to be talking with Darren much more about this. Just one further thought that I've got, you know, we, you and I see these comments on online sometimes, people saying yeah, apps are not the answer, you know, it's not all about apps. What, what's your kind of response to some of those comments yeah. that we see?
3: I've kind of developed a stock response now because people often say, um, you know, tech isn't the answer and app isn't the answer, to which we can reply, we totally agree. You know, tech isn't the answer, <laughs> it's an answer. And so the other thing that people get, you know, it's not about technology. It's not about, you know, mechanics or it's not about machine learning or, you know, well, hang on, hang on. This isn't just about technology on its own. This is, as you mentioned earlier, it's the integration of digital and human systems. So one of the best roles of tech is identifying people in trouble and then getting the right human support to them.
2: That's a really important message. Thank you for that, Paula. And Danny. what are some of the technologies we could share with our listeners that we know are playing an important role right now in supporting those who are feeling suicidal or perhaps have been bereaved by suicide?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are some brilliant individuals and organisations using technology in a really positive way to support people with their mental health and and with the aim of preventing suicides. And A few that come to mind are Ripple Suicide Prevention, which was set up by Alice Hendy in memory of her brother, Josh, who took his own life in 2020. And that's an online interceptive tool which ensures that more help and support is given to individuals searching for harmful content online. And So that's a really good preventative one in terms of of self-harm and suicide. Um, for those looking for mental health support um, and for organisations that can potentially help with suicidal thoughts, um, there's the Hub of Hope, where you simply go to hubofhope.co.uk, you put in your address and you find the support that's right for you in your area. Um, and another really good one that I want to highlight um, is a free app. It was just launched in November um, by Suicide & Co called Sidekick, and it supports those bereaved by suicide through general mental health exercises and personalized suicide bereavement specific resources. So yeah, so technology, when it's used in the right way, I think can be a really helpful tool and and also widen people's options for support.
3: There's also the Stay Alive app developed by Grassroots for people who are struggling in suicidal crisis or supporting someone in crisis.
2: Great. Well, you can read more about the topic of using technology for good in the Jordan Legacies Moving Towards a Zero Suicide Society Action Research Project Report, which was published earlier this summer with a second edition in September. And you can find that report by visiting our website, thejordanlegacy.com, and then go to the menu titled Latest. Well, look, many thanks both. We're going to take a short break now and play another track chosen by our guest this week, Darren Barden. Uh, when we do come back, we'll begin our conversation with Darren by asking him about an event 27 years ago when he was the victim of a professional hit and mistaken identity, this experience left him with severe injuries and sometime later led to him planning to take his own life. We'll be right back after we've listened to You Gave Me a Mountain by Elvis. This,
0: this is, is Yawa, Yawa Radio. Radio.
2: Welcome back. I guess this week is Darren Barden, a bestselling author for his book, Let's Skip to the Good Bits. And together with business partner Phil Thorne, Darren has recently launched iTalk, a brand new app for the construction industry to help reduce suicides. Darren, welcome to the show. Good to uh, have you join us today.
4: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
2: Absolutely great to see you. And uh, Darren, look, you've been associated with the construction industry for many years. And through our work at the Jordan Legacy, we're very aware that around 10 percent of all suicides in the UK happen in this industry what are your thoughts as to why that might be the case?
4: I think it's it's, it's a male-dominated industry still. This man-up culture still exists. You know, we, when I look at my son, who's 28 years old, you know, he's, his generation seems to still be, they're, they're talking more. With 35 years old and above, maybe, we're still not doing that. This starts when you come into the construction industry. Quite often, you, you've fallen into it. You've left school. Your dad was a builder, your uncle, your granddad. You then get into a situation quite often where you've worked for someone, learnt a trade, and then you go self-employed. You know, there's a lot of small businesses out there. And before you know it, you've stumbled on a big contract and things are going along quite nicely. Then all of a sudden the work dries up. You're getting into a league maybe that you're not used to, you're not being able to cope with. And for me, that's where a lot of this pressure can come from. And that's what I want to try and do myself, is actually prevent that pressure through education but I do believe that it stems from just a lack of knowledge on what goes on outside of cutting a piece of wood or digging a hole, you know, whatever the industry you're in may be.
2: I, I think it's a really good point. It's almost quite an isolated business. A lot of small businesses, there trying to manage their business passed down through generations. They're not necessarily business people. They're great trades people.
4: Oh, absolutely. You know, for me, just making sure that people are aware, you know, there's this phrase, you know, it's okay not to be okay. You know, we're here going around quite a bit and it's true, you know, we have bad days, you know, but in that world, sometimes you, you can't own up to it, you know, and you get intimidated just by your surroundings. It may be you've got a great group of people around you who are very supportive, but they don't know you need help. So all of a sudden then you, you can become very alone and that's, that's the worry. Now...
2: You're no stranger yourself to uh, mental health challenges. And I want to take you back, if I may, to Monday, the 7th of October, 1996. You experienced uh, an event at your home, which had a profound effect on your life and uh, the life of your family. Can you explain to our listeners, just take us through what happened that day?
4: Yes. So I used to do uh, two jobs, as a lot of people do. Back back then, we were short of money. We had a one-year-old son at the time. So I used to do my day job and then at night I would then go and work delivering newspapers to shops in a van and and I'd go out of the house somewhere between 12 o'clock and 2 o'clock in the morning, depending on uh, what day of the week it was. And on this Monday night, I would have been going to work probably around the 2 o'clock mark. But then we got a knock on the door at midnight or just before midnight. Now, back then, we didn't have mobile phones, you know, so... And they wouldn't ring your house number to say you were late. So getting a knock on the door wasn't necessarily a regular thing, but it certainly wasn't something to worry about. You know, it would invariably be your workmates going and you've overslept. I didn't think twice, ran downstairs in my underpants, opened the door to two guys who who stood there. The one, as I looked out to my right, he looked to my left and there was an alleyway outside my house and they just nodded and there was no words, no words spoken, and then I felt them coming forward, I held my hands out in front of myself, and by then I'm now starting to take blows to the the head and the body, I couldn't tell you at the time what was happening, there was a period where I then was sat in a fetal position on the floor, and I could just feel my head being battered from side to side, and once again, at this point, I've got no knowledge that I'm being stabbed, you know, this was, This was not in my mind. I was just being beaten up as far as I I knew. I didn't really know what was going on. Then it just stopped. It stopped and they walked away. There was no running. There was no shouting. The only screaming and shouting was coming from myself. Wendy, my wife, was upstairs with me, one-year-old son at the time, George. And it just sort of stopped. And that was (coughs) it. They just stopped, walked away. I shut the front door with, I don't know whether it was my hands or my legs, I can't remember, and then crawled my way through my hallway and my living room to a telephone.
2: I mean, pretty terrifying experience, Darren. But but I mean, did you ever get to to learn who this
4: was? First of all, the police came. Obviously, the police came and they just said, "Listen, it's it's a bad day at the office. It's, it looks like a case of mistaken identity and what would be a professional hit." And they just, you know, they just said it's one of those things, Darren. You, you, I've heard you tell this
3: story that, at a meeting that we attended together, and I think you said you were stabbed. Was it twenty
4: times or thirty times or something? Yeah, was. Tw- I had twenty-two stab wounds. But I had seven in my skull, and each one of those seven was where I was repeatedly stabbed in the same place more than once. So although there was 22 wounds on my body, it's quite possibly in excess of 40 actual stabbings. So it's remarkable that you're still with us. So if you visualize you've got two guys coming in, and I've got three types of wound, that means one of them had a blade in each hand so he was using both blades on me with both Mm. hands you know so that's a uh, i mean you know i don't know what goes through these people's minds you know
3: (laughs) yeah i mean that's one of those situations where obviously to to the rest of us it is unimaginable you know it really is unimaginable
4: yeah the the strange thing is paul is that even now when i visualize the attack i'm not gonna say it doesn't bother me obviously it does bother me but the the thought of wendy upstairs with a one-year-old in her arms listening to my screams that's the bit that really bothers me. That's the bit that impacts me more than anything, because, you know, what must have been going through her mind? But, you know, the fear that she must have been living through, because obviously I was just being attacked, mm-hmm. and didn't have a chance to contemplate what was going on. But for Wendy, I figured the, the, the greater problem was there. You know, the fear she must have been living through at that moment, for however long that attack was going on, until she come down and see me like, sort of bleeding yeah, to yeah. death there
1: to carry on from what you were just saying, has that had sort of a long-lasting effect on Wendy? And and what about your son? Obviously, he was too young at the time to realise, but has that had any effect on him just knowing what happened to you? So
4: for me, the long-lasting effect for Wendy is she still wants, along with my mum and dad, she still wants someone to pay for it. You know, she doesn't feel, you know, the fact it was mistaken identity, no one's ever been caught, sits comfortable with me in the sense of, I know it wasn't for me. But from Wendy's point of view, no one's ever been made to pay for this. You know, she's she's now had to go into mother mode as opposed to wife and looking after her husband mode because I had lots of people trying to do that for me. So I think that helped at the time. I think at some point in life, there will be a moment when she just says, hang on a minute, you know, this has really caught cool up with me, as it did with me. My son, the story's quite strange as well. So he was one years old or just over one years old at the time. We then went to live... With my mum and dad for nearly nine months, I think it was in total, while we sorted the house back out, you know, replaced the carpets and the settees and so on. But when we went back to the house for the first time, as we got about 10 yards away from the house, now bearing in mind, George is probably only 18, maybe 20 months old at this point, he dropped to the floor and was refusing to go to the house. He just couldn't, like now, this is a baby, you know, this is a toddler just barely walking and he just wouldn't go. You know, he did, didn't want to go into the house. And we, Wendy will never forget that moment because we're thinking, hang on, what impact did it have on him at the time? We don't know. You know, he couldn't really tell us what, what was going on. But now I, at 28 years old, he understands. You know, he understands what we've been through and it's made him a better person, I think, as well.
2: I want to take us forward now because yeah. in some ways you said now you've you've managed to kind of deal with it and, and accept to some degree what's happened. But if we fast forward some 13, 14 years to that, day in 1996 that experience did come back to haunt you when symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder PTSD almost ended in pretty tragic circumstances for you
4: absolutely and it was really strange because a couple of people that I know who have known many many years but didn't know closely so my friend Terry for example I used to speak to him you know probably once a month on the phone and meet up with him two or three times a year and he phoned me one day and he said to me are you okay you know just random phone call and I was like yeah I'm fine you know and but somehow from a distance he'd spotted a change in me and I don't know what that was well I didn't know myself I didn't I didn't take any notice of it at the time but someone so distant from me had spotted a change now the people close to you were probably not noticing the changes because it was a gradual process for them whereas maybe where I hadn't spoken to him it was more of a dramatic change from the last person he spoke to with me. So that was something that's strange that happened. And it crept up on me. And I started doing silly things. And, you know, they always say you hurt the ones you love. And that's what I was doing with Wendy. I turned into a, a jealous nightmare. I was creating situations that weren't there. I was told by a counsellor I had something called catastrophic thinking. So I could quite easily, you know, take a very simple, normal situation and turn it into something dramatic and you know (laughs) that would would throw everybody off course you know and it's so I was doing things like that which was I I developed a hatred of people certain people so because I decided I was going to take my own life I I then decided that right Wendy's going to mourn for this amount of time the kids are going to mourn for this amount of time this is when they were going to go back to work then I started noticing actually if I'm gone that guy and that guy is going to start being friends with Wendy. So they're going to be muscling in because suddenly you've got a woman on her own with a house to pay and all that sorts. These things are all going on in my mind and they're very real to me at the time, clearly just a fabrication of the imagination, you know? So, but then these guys, they did, you know, they've done nothing in their lives towards us other than being nice people around us. But I developed a hatred of them, a real hatred. They were a real threat to me, you know? And it was almost that was one of the reasons I probably delayed what was going to be the inevitable at the time because I was like I I couldn't go with these people in the world you know what I mean so it was a strange situation to be caught up in but my mind was all over the place you know there was times I went I went down into the living room I couldn't sleep I mean I've never been a great sleeper anyway throughout my life but there was times I really couldn't sleep and we had a coffee table and I would walk around in circles around this coffee table at pace and And when I was doing it, that was then sort of making the situation worse because I then got angry with myself because I didn't understand why I was was doing it. You know, there's been times where I I got in my car and sped off our drive at the time, you know, wheel spinning, in anger. Like, why? There was no reason, you know, no reason. These things were not logical. What was the catalyst that made you realise
2: there was an issue and you needed to get help?
4: So... The thing was, it was was two things that happened that were very, very close to each other. My friends, Stuart and Rachel, who have been our close friends for 30-odd years, they'd they'd given up drink for about three years, and they were coming down to see us the day after Boxing Day. On the Boxing Day, we was round Wendy's mum and dad's having Christmas dinner. Wendy, my daughter Shannon and her mum were all out in the kitchen. I was left with my father-in-law, Herbie, sitting at the table, and he'd had a bit of a cough and a cold. And he just said to me, they don't prepare you for this old age, you're just getting ill. But he was was saying what he said and how he said it to me. And I suddenly thought, hang on a minute, he thinks this is getting close to the end for him. And if anything happens to him, I can't even look after myself, let alone his daughter. It felt like that was a massive moment. About two and a half, three months previous, I'd been to the doctors and got the tablets I call them my mentalist pills. I know when we don't, you know, it's just how we are as a family. We try and keep a smile on our faces, you know. So I call them my mentalist pills. And these pills have been kicked around the house everywhere. They were on a windowsill. They were on a coffee table. They were on a cupboard. Everyone could see them, but I was refusing to take them because it meant it beat me. And I didn't want to be beaten by this, this situation I had, you know. And it would have meant these guys that attacked me had won. So I was refusing to take the tablets, because that was me losing. And consequently, obviously, then I'm just on a downward spiral, you know, without taking the tablets. So then Stu and Rachel came down the day after boxing day, and I've had this moment with my father-in-law the day before. They turn up, we went out for a nice walk, and they said, come, we're going to pub. And they came in and they had a drink with me. That's the first time they drank for three years. And they'd done that to make me feel relaxed and comfortable. And it was a remarkable statement from them. You know, listen, we're here for you. And it was it was you know that's what made me take the tablets i was like right i've got to there's enough people here showing the support i'd realized so that's when i took the first tablet i cried my eyes out i sat there crying wendy was with me and she. wendy's always been there with every step of the way and i just cried i sobbed my heart out because taking that first tablet was was a massive moment and that really huge moment but the following day i woke up with a spring in my step now clearly the tablets don't work that quick but it was almost a celebration taking the second one. It was like, well, I'm on the road to recovery, you know? So those two little moments were really, they, they were the ones that made me take the tablets, which then leveled my brain out enough to start getting my life back.
1: I was just wondered why you think sort of the trauma and the mental health issues and everything came so long after it happened? Because I suppose there are a lot of people that think, oh, if you get PTSD, it's something that happens right away. And they might not be aware that after they've been through a really traumatic event, it might actually not come out until years later.
4: Yeah, so I actually heard when you come out of active service in the military or something like that, and you've, you've seen action, I've heard that sometimes the PTSD, the average time was about 13 years, I believe. What I've been told with counsellors and psychiatrists was that I got into a stage in my life where actually I was just getting on with life. And I think what had happened is it left a bit of space at the front of the brain to go, hang on a minute, we're not going to let you forget this. And I I believe that's what brought it to the fore and why it was so long after. Darren, I've
3: heard you talking about your story. We call this a story. It sounds like an absolute nightmare, but this story. And I think one of the things that possibly is the most shocking thing when, that I've heard you say, and I've seen shocks and gasps in the audience, is that you said, having experienced the stabbing and having experienced the mental pain and the suicidal thinking and depression, the PTSD. If you had to have one of those again,
4: you'd take the stabbing every time. One hundred percent. The the depression or PTSD was, I would say, thousands of times worse than than the stabbing. For me, the stabbing the stabbing happened, and it was clearly out of my control. But yeah, given if I had to choose one or the other to take again. It would be the stabbing all day long. The depression was, and you know, even now, when I think back to those days, it pains me. Whereas when I think back to the actual stabbing and look at what I'm doing now, there's, there's an element of me feels quite good, you know, proud of where I've come. But I, I, at no point do I feel proud about what I was doing when I was going through the depression. There's no, there's no sense of pride in some of the anguish I would have caused back then, you know. So the depression for me was... I just wouldn't recommend that to anybody, you know, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemies. It was horrendous, absolutely horrendous, you know, but luckily enough, I've come for it. You know, that's the, that's the good part of it.
2: Look, we're going to take a short break in a moment, but I'd like to ask you about your, your book. It's become a bestseller and it's titled
4: less skip to the good Bits. Can you tell us what the book's about? Yeah. So it's, it's my story and I was the first ever case in the UK to take the criminal injuries compensation ball to a parliamentary ombudsman. And I lost. It was government versus government. I was never winning that one. But, you know, I needed to sort of take my anger out on someone, and they were it. And so I got a letter from Victim Support basically telling me how I'd got on. And, you know, they said, look, there's a book in this. You need to write a book. Basically, they were saying, if I wrote a book, I might have helped myself and helped others at the time. But it was about 19 years later I, re- I wrote the book, so uh, it was always there. Uh, but writing the book was, at the time, one of the best things I've done. You know, I'd sit there crying my the eyes out, tapping away on a computer, writing this book, and all of that. I just wrote my story and told people how I felt, and I didn't really know why I was doing it at the time. And subsequently, then, when the book helped other people, that's when I actually wished I knew know what I was doing at the time with the book. I could have done a lot more with it, but. I just wrote it straight from the heart and and put down how I felt. And and that's where it went from there. Let's get to the good bits was, it was born out of my mum and dad used to, when we first got a video recorder, and back in the day, we'd have a video recorder and it had a cable which had a remote control on it. So instead of the kids getting up pushing the buttons, we had a remote control. And when it got to the adverts and anything we would recorded, my mum used to say, come on, let's get to the good bits. So fast forward through the adverts. And my mum always used to say it. And then this song come out from the Rizzle Kicks, Let's Skip to the Good Bits. And it just resonated with me. And I thought, no, my mum always said that, let's skip to the good bits. And at the time of writing, that's what I was doing. I was skipping to the good bits and that's where it came from.
2: Fantastic. Well, look, there'll be some young people listening to this that are probably shocked by what they're listening to. Probably more shocked about the fact that a video player had a remote control on a cable than than possibly your story in some cases. I don't know. <laughs> but look, that's a perfect segue. We're, we're going to take a short break uh, now uh, and listen to that song by The Rizzle Kicks. Let's skip to the good bits. Uh, when we come back, we'll be speaking with Darren about the app iTalk that he co-created and launched on November the 24th this year. For now, Darren, thanks very much. And uh, we'll be right back after. This.
0: You're listening to Yawa Radio and we love to bring you details of the inspirational book of the week. We love to bring you the inspirational book of the week. And this week's book is The Slight Edge by Jeff Olson. It's all about turning simple disciplines into massive success. You know, why is it that some people make dream after dream come true, while others just continue dreaming and spend their lives building dreams for someone else? One simple reason, Jeff suggests, is that uh, those that are successful have found their slight edge. The slight edge is not just another self-help, motivational tool of methods you must learn in order to make up the path of success. No, no, no it simply shows you how to create powerful results how the simple daily activities of your life by using the tools that are already within you so this week's inspirational book of the week is by jeff olson it is called the slight edge turning simple disciplines into massive success
2: Welcome back. We're speaking with best-selling author and co-founder of iTalk, a brand new app to help reduce suicides in the construction industry. Darren, before we talk about iTalk specifically, the theme of today's show is technology for good. And I know technology is something you've been involved with in your role with Hilti, one of the leading global suppliers of business tech solutions. How much of your experience in that role has, was helpful to you in starting to formulate some ideas for the app?
4: It's pivotal, I think. It's um, it's it's really important. F- firstly, I want to I want sort of just talk about Hilti as an employer as well. Hilti actually live and breathe that work life balance. You know, we have all the trials and tribulations of normal work. You know, whether it be stock pricing, deliveries, all the stuff that happens in every workplace. But when it comes to the people, Hilti really look after their people. And there's, I could tell you many stories, but for today, you know, a couple of years ago, they came to me and said, look, you know, the work you do with, with mental health within Hilti and outside of Hilti, how about you do a four day week, you know, so you can do the work you do. And it's like, right, brilliant, you know, and so they they do things like that, but they've supported me right through the journey and having that stability and a company behind me, that was what allowed me to firstly write the book. I also believe it put me on the road to recovery because I, I wasn't under pressure. You know, they, their ethos and the way they work is so good. It gives you that freedom to be yourself. So it's really important message to anyone out there. If you are employing anybody to actually have a look at that as a business model, it's not just about the figures and the bottom line, as much as anyone may say, the people are so, so important. So how they helped me basically, I was, in, I'm, I'm selling into the construction industry and in particular, the tool hire industry. And, it puts me onto the construction sites in amongst the guys that are actually that I'm now hoping to help, you know? So and with that, I started to talk to them and every one of them had a story. You know, everyone you speak to, they've got a story to tell. And because they knew who I was because of the book and so on, it was easy for them to talk to me, but they didn't have that outlet anywhere else. You know, it's okay when I rocked up on site. I wasn't even in there as a, you know, some sort of mental health advocate or anything like that. I had a call and the guy was really struggling. I just said to him, look, you know, get a focus, get a a hobby, get a focus, go and help somebody, go and work for a charity. You know, this is not, this is not an educated conversation. This is me just saying how I dealt with things and helping other people. It's such a rewarding part of my life, you know, and maybe I don't get it right every time, but if I'm only talking from the heart, I believe it can't be wrong.
2: At a time when you were working on an ideas and how to bring the suicide numbers down in the construction industry on March the 16th this year i understand you lost a very close personal friend to to cancer but almost in a moment of serendipity you also happened to meet on the same day phil Thorne someone who's become a big part of your life <laughs> since then can you tell us a little bit about that meeting and why that was so important that day
4: yes yeah, so- to, to backtrack a little bit just before the meeting a friend of mine john had come to me and there'd been a suicide on a construction site on one of his sites and it really impacted him and he, he, he just felt the pain of everyone around him the, the workforce the families and he came to me and he, at that, and he said i think oh, i've got an idea and he said i want a mental health room on construction sites he said we've got a drying room a prayer room a tea room a first aid room we've got this room that room he said i want a mental health room he said can you come up with an idea or something for it and i went away and i thought that's brilliant but the more i thought about it that male dominated environment that we speak about that you know the alpha male who won't own up to the fact he's struggling he's not going to walk through a door that's got a sign above it basically saying i'm nuts i needed to come up with something else and that's where the app came about so i started working on it started speaking to a couple of people I'd had a conversation with Phil Fawn, but I didn't know Phil. And anyway, my friend had just gone into a hospice a couple of weeks before with cancer, which he'd been battling with. And on the morning I was going to meet Phil, I got the phone call that said, Dad's dad's passed away, like you know, he's died. And so it was one of those moments. I was on my way, only an hour-long drive away, but there was food for thought there, you know. And I just I just looked to the sky and I I said to Graham, I said, Look, Graham, you know, do me a favor, can you line a few ducks up for us? You know. Uh, I could do him a stroke of luck and I'm not a religious person uh, particularly. And so off I went to the meeting and me and Phil sat there and we hit it off straight away. And I came out of that meeting a couple of hours later, looked to the sky and went, wow, it works. You know, So,
2: you know, you lined the ducks up for me, Graham. Well, look, I think this is a brilliant time to start talking about the app. Just tell us how does it work and, and what are your aspirations really for it as well?
4: So. When we come up with the idea of the the app, and initially it was a suicide prevention app, and that's what we, we sort of was the target we was going for. I think we realised that actually, you know, when someone gets into that position, it's not necessarily about trying to help them, it's actually saving them, making them safe. And I needed something that was gonna educate them before they got there and support them and put some you know some signposting and organizations in place that so they could openly seek this without opening up initially the reason we started with the construction industry is because of the level of deaths you know 500 average of 507 deaths a year to every working day in the construction industry and obviously i've got a lot of contacts in that world as as well but it opens it up to so many other facets within industry within business in general so we can we can take this to hospitals to police forces to universities and because we've we've owned the technology that's behind it we can actually recreate this for any sector. It's called iTalk. You know, we could have called called it, you know, We Talk, anything. It's just iTalk was was there because we that's what we want. We want people to say, I can talk, you know, I can talk to people. And that's where the name came from.
3: Thank you, Darren and, and Phil and the team for giving us iTalk. <clears throat> it's got, I it's just got tremendous potential to be a game changer. And thank you also for uh, giving me the honour and privilege of talking at your at your launch. Um, at, at the launch, I, one of the things I said was about the statistics, like, you know, the 500 people, um, the 10% uh, of all suicides uh, being people working in construction, more if it's including people working with construction as well as in construction. But I was talking about the, the statistics that potentially get the change that we need. And one of those statistics, I believe, is that People working in the construction sector are 10 times more likely to die by suicide than by physical accidents at work. 10 times more likely to die by suicide than physical accidents at work. Do you think that the construction industry reflects that in the way that it deals with physical accidents at work and suicide and mental health and psychological injury at
4: work? Not at all. We often talk about this box ticking that a lot of companies do and i feel they do that because they don't know what to do and that's one of the things we want to help so it's not just about helping the users of the app and the people on the ground that need the help it's actually about educating the businesses as well to actually live something rather than just tell the world you're doing something it's not you've got to live this you know bring us in bring you guys in let's talk to these people let's educate them and let's stop it again let's bring that 507 down because it's going to give me nothing no greater pride than seeing that number going backwards
3: A key part of the technology that's within the italk app is uh, for whistleblowers and protecting whistleblowers and we know that people who try to raise concerns uh, are often bullied and harassed and drummed out of the industry and so on and you know can you just very briefly tell us that uh, you know what is in there and how good it is
4: yeah so we, we prefer to call it the speaking up app part of it so it comes we've got i talk the mental health app and then we've got the speaking up app as well and we can combine the two because what we found is that people don't have the ability to speak up then struggle inside and that can affect their uh, mental capabilities as well and their mental well-being so it's really about giving someone an avenue to go down that is completely anonymous if they if they want to be known they can they can then suggest it's not just about whistleblowing and and grassing people up as they would say on site. This is actually about bringing about change, you know, giving people the confidence to speak up.
1: Is the app already available?
4: The full app will be available from the the 8th of December where we can actually go into businesses and show them the, the app with all functionalities.
2: Darren, look, thanks so much for sharing everything that you've shared today. The The app sounds a really exciting development. And as we approach the end of each show, we, we always like to ask our guests to share a message of hope. And I want to ask you who your message of hope would be for and what that message is.
4: You know, I hope my mum and dad and Wendy could see where I've got to now, really to the good bits. And I, that's one of my things I hope for but my message to other people out there is you know keep going especially those that are not struggling and not suffering keep an eye out for those that are you know that's I think then the, you give other people hope you give the people that are struggling and maybe can't see a light at the end of the tunnel you will give them hope just by looking out from being there for them and asking are they okay you know and if they say yeah but you're not sure ask again and if need be ask again because I believe that saves lives. That's
2: a, a great message, and in many ways, a great introduction to the next song that we're going to going to play now. One of them you've chosen here is "If I Can Dream" by Elvis. Uh, I, I think we should explain. We've had a couple of Elvis tracks t- today, and there's probably a reason behind that. But yeah, just tell us a little bit about the Elvis connection for you, and and
4: why this track. So we've I've been an Elvis fan sort of most of my life, but this song, "If I Can Dream." My granddad always used to say to me that I was a dreamer. I was a dreamer at school. I was a dreamer in my work life. And when I look back on it, as much as I was dreaming, I was always hoping to move on. It was my drive, if you like, to go further. So it wasn't a dream that you just dismissed and you didn't do anything with it. I've actually now done something with it. And there was a moment i come out from visiting my granddad's graveside and I got in the car. The song came on. I'd just left my granddad's graveside and it just hit me. And I sobbed. I just sobbed. And it was it was just such a wonderful moment, though. I wasn't I don't know if I I wasn't crying out of sadness. I wasn't crying out of happiness. I just everything poured out of me and it just became a moment, you know. And when I told my dad that I actually think I've got my new favourite song and he was like, that's my favourite Elvis song. And now I've had a dream. It's called I Talk and hopefully we can go on and do great things with that. Well, the important thing is you've taken
2: a dream and you manifested that, and, and that's really important. Darren, look, I want to thank you so much for, for today. It's been a, a real pleasure having you on, on board and looking forward to, to working with you, of course, on, on the app. Now we're going to take a, a short break. We're going to listen to If I Can Dream by Elvis. And when we come back, Danny, Paul, and I will do a quick roundup of today's show.
0: This, this is, is Yawa Radio. Radio.
2: Well, welcome back, everybody. Da- Danny, what were kind of some of the things you've taken away from our conversation with Darren?
1: Darren obviously went through a hugely traumatic experience and he highlighted you know, the massive effects that trauma can have on an individual and the, the dangers that can come from this, not only for yourself but for others and the dangers that if you don't get this support that you need, what this can lead to. But he obviously comes came through the other side and, and he found a purpose helping others.
2: Paul, how, how about uh, you? What were some of the real takeaways for you today?
3: Well, I think that when people hear these stories, and again, I always think stories is just a strange term to use, but when people hear these real life stories, I can imagine people thinking, well, that must be the lowest point to be attacked like that and stabbed and, and multiple stabs and crawling, you know, to get to the phone for your life and, and, and the trauma with his wife and everything. I mean, most people think that must be the lowest point. But for Darren to then describe to us, How that wasn't the lowest point in his life, and that the PTSD, the depression, the suicidal thinking, the feeling that it was all over for him, and all the consequences of that, you know, that was the lowest point to the, you know, such that he would take the stabbing every time if he had to choose between the two. I mean, this is really the message for all of us to take away. That's how bad it is if people haven't experienced these things. Also, you know, a lot of insights into trauma there, the impact on Wendy, the impact on you know his son, you know, even at such a young age, and the fact that Wendy is his wife is still carrying this anger all these years later. But I think you know on the positive side of the coin there, the, the support from his employer, the commitment from Hilti to mental health, and 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 allowing Darren to to spend time on this is fantastic, and the iTalk app, it is remarkable. And I would just kind of temper what Darren said there about the suicide prevention aspect to it, because he's saying, you know, we don't tend to focus on the suicide. The fact that they even just mentioned suicide prevention, the fact that they mentioned it in their promotional literature, the fact that Darren talked about it at the launch, this is a mental health and suicide prevention app. And that is a massive breakthrough in itself.
2: I would absolutely agree, Paul. There really were so many takeaways there. And, and for me, I think one of the big ones was just recognising this comparison between the, the physical experience and pain that he went through and how much worse the
3: mental trauma. There's one other thing, which which actually Darren didn't mention, but I'll mention, and that is that... Because I think this is groundbreaking as well. I think the app is groundbreaking. I think the functionality is groundbreaking. The protection of you know, people speaking up is groundbreaking. But also... It was entirely funded with private money, no government money, no public funding involved in this, an app designed for the construction sector, and then it's going to go out to other sectors as well, and it's been entirely funded by private money.
2: Well, look, thank you both for those thoughts there. And that's it for another episode of Jordan Space. My thanks to Danny and Paul and to this week's guest, Darren Barden. Thank you also for tuning in. I hope you found today's discussion interesting and insightful. And if you felt inspired to support our work to help prevent suicides, you can make a donation on our website, thejordanlegacy.com. You can also get in touch with us directly via email. To hello at the You can also engage with us on our social media by following the Jordan Legacy CIC's LinkedIn company page. We're also on Twitter and Instagram using the username at Jordan Legacy UK. And you can find us on Facebook at the Jordan Legacy. You can listen to today's show and previous recordings of Jordan Space on our website by choosing the menu Jordan Space. For now, and from Danny, Paul and myself, we'd like to wish you a safe, healthy and above all hopeful rest of your week. And we're now going to leave you with one final track chosen by Darren, which is Ain't No Pleasing You by Chaz and Dave.
0: A big thank you for taking the time out to listen to this podcast from the team at Yawa Radio. Remember to check us out live online 24 hours a day, seven days a week at yawaradio.com co.uk and if you'd like to join us as a guest on yawa radio or as a guest on the yawa radio podcast we would love to hear from you simply email studio at yawaradio.co.uk once again a big thank you for taking the time out to listen this is the yawa radio podcast copyright applies